Avengers Infinity War. Now, nothing will ever be the same. Can anyone make sense out of all that's happened? These guys are going to try. Peter Melnick, local newspaper production associate, comic book enthusiast, and podcast pontificator. And Eddie Wilson, upstate New York morning radio broadcast announcer in the Sullivan Catskills, inundated with an inordinate amount of catching up in his own comic book universe. What happens next? Listen up, true believers. It's time for another episode of The Marvelists. Cyclops, Storm, Banshee, Nightcrawler, Wolverine, Colossus, Children of the Atom, Students of Charles Xavier, Mutants, feared and hated by the world they have sworn to protect. These are the strangest heroes of all. Stan Lee presents The Uncanny X-Men. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Eddie Wilson. And before we get into the usual rigmarole of today's episode being X-Men from 2000, we want to talk to you fine people at home about how you can listen to this here program. And at large and at elsewhere. You can listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and wherever great podcasts are listened to bubble And found Exactly. Lost and found. No, I mean, we might be in there, you know, with a pair of sunglasses or like a shoe. I don't know. But you can also go on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Marvelists. Give us a like on there and join the 5,000 plus, 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 plus. Closer to six. Well, as of this recording, but join us, won't you? Give us a follow on Twitter collectively at... The Marvelists. Give myself a follow at Peter Melnick, and Eddie doesn't want to be bothered with your Twitter nonsense people. Stop what, asking to follow him. What's a Twitter? Exactly. Well, it's like a thing a bird makes, maybe. Uh, a tweet. A social media platform. Yes, platform. Also, give us a follow on Instagram at The Marvelists. Give myself a follow at Peter Melnick and yourself. A follow at Eddie9193. Cool. Also, you can be able to listen to this show. Again, like we said, on Stitcher Radio, which if you go to stitcher.com slash premium and use the promo code at checkout, marvelous, you'll be able to get one free month of Stitcher Premium. And if you want to stay on board for four ninety nine a month, you can. You can. My voice cracked a little. I'm going through puberty, Eddie. Again? It's... You know, it's supposed to only happen once, not that many times. I don't want to talk about they it. They say it's just as good the second time as it is the first time. Well, I'd like to know who they are because they're well, not, I, I mean, so. come on. Zip, pop, and goodness. Buh. But. You digest. I digest. Oh, 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 my digesting. But people at home, you'll be able to listen to a plethora of content, including WTF with Mark Marin, the archives over there, Earwolf's so many shows you can also listen to Wolverine the Long Night from Marvel Studios and 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 Weird Al Yankovic's recent tour so go to stitcher.com slash premium and use the promo code at checkout marvelous I don't know why I was inflecting it like that but here we are yeah yes exactly in Marvel Manor where else would you be well under the sea. We uh, we can't solve our problems by going under the sea. Not with that attitude. But in an oxygen tank. Exactly. Also, people, drop us a line in our email bag, themarvelists at gmail.com. Ooh. 
And when you do questions, comments, strongly worded letters, we will read them. We will answer them. We will shake our fist at the screen or phone. Scratch our heads. Why? Why? I don't know. But, Eddie, you know what I do know? That the costume for Captain Marvel is straight up fire. I'm loving it. It's good stuff. Blah, dot, 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 dot. Captain Marvel. That was awful. Well, definitely far cry from Marvel us. Oh, it's 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 bad. Not the costume, my joke. It it, it bad. They get it, Eddie. I got to tell you, a lot of people were going on, you know, asking, "Are we going to see the green costume? We're going to see the blue costume?" Well, we saw both in the most recent Entertainment Weekly photos, and I'm fond of both of them. And I think the idea of like this this straight up motorcycle outfit kind of thing. It's continuing the Marvel trend of really cool leather outfits. Is that what they're calling this now, this red, blue, and yellow? Like, what do you mean? Motorcycle? It, it, to me, it looks like motorcycle stuff. It's got a leather appeal to it? Or? Yeah. Ah, okay. You look at Captain America's outfit in, for example, Civil War and Winter Soldier, and it's almost like a motorcycle jacket that's, you know, zipped up. Think about it. Yeah, I suppose. You, okay. You thinking about it, Eddie? I am. Well, now you are. I have no choice. And, yeah, it's a very just cool-looking outfit. And Brie Larson, Brie Larson is definitely going to be a great choice visually so far. We don't know how she's acting in it. We haven't gotten our first trailer as of this recording on September 5th, 2018. But I'm, I'm digging it. And I would say this is... It's not exactly like the comic book costume. I feel like this has more depth and dimension to it, obviously because it's not a 2D image. Right. But there's more intrinsic details and more layers to it that you wouldn't that you wouldn't really get in the comic book. I feel like when you look at the comic book costumes, they're very like obviously one-dimensional because or two-dimensional because they're an image. Yep. Exactly. But I feel like they don't, like, if this was the comic book world, it would not have that level of, like, depth to it. It would be just, like, smooth, silky smooth of all these costumes. Yeah, I think it's it's true enough that you, upon just glance seeing it, you say, oh, yes, Captain, if you're in somewhat in the know, you see it and recognize it from more recent comics, and it's close enough to be that way. It's not going to be an exact match, but it's fine. It's going to work. I think we got something really to look forward to in uh, March of 2019. Would you say that Captain Marvel is going to be a breakthrough in the same way of Black Panther? This is going to be a character that you know no one expected to be as big of a deal as it became. I, had, you know, they're setting it up. I think to some degree like that, because that's where Infinity War left off with that post-credit scene. The call was the the page was made, so this is where it's going to pick up. I think a different time frame, because there was questions on well, where was Captain Marvel when all the Avengers Infinity War stuff was happening and so on. But it's it's kind of backing up, I think in a way like Ant Man and Wasp. Back it up, was, back it up, back it up, back, back it, up. it up, back it up. That's from the first one. Back Ant Man, back it up. Yep. Thank well, you. I know the movie is going to be taking place during the 1990s. It's yep. going to be a period piece. Which, by the way, they also released Entertainment Weekly released a shot of Samuel L. Jackson de-aged to 1995. Oh, okay, right, right. And let me tell you, that was absolutely crazy to see. <laughs> it was very cool. Mm-hmm. And 
I'm excited to see young Sam Jackson again, mm-hmm. like circa Pulp Fiction. That's going to be cool. And yeah, but didn't he have hair in Pulp Fiction? He did. Oh, he had a fro. Oh, oh yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Now I want to know what did you think of the first look at the scrolls? I, I read a couple of comments that they were like spot on, excellent, really, really good, good looking. And I, I read as far as scrolls, as far as looking goes, but I do think that they came out really good. I think they look yeah. better than their comic book counterparts. If we're being completely honest, well, it's more than enough to compare it to. So you have to go with with that. You know, the, well, compared to the comics, several lines on the chin is is their trademark look. I don't, I didn't see a very very close up look. I saw them what are they, coming out of the coming from the from the ocean. I think, yeah, that kind of a shot with that the ocean behind them. And the only thing we really know right now is Ronan, the Accuser from Guardians of the Galaxy, played by Lee Pace. He's going to be in this movie. Alive. Uh, yeah, imagine that. I'm surprised. I mean, well, then again. DH this. Yeah, exactly. But he's going to be in the movie, and some people are wondering what his role is going to be. And apparently, because yeah. this is going to be part of the Kree Scroll War that we're going to be seeing. Yeah, okay. Ronan is going to potentially be teaming up with Captain Marvel and Marvel, played apparently by Jude Law. Wow, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're in a universe where there are two Sherlock Holmeses and two Watsons. Yeah. I kind of dig seeing that, but we're going to find out how Ronan became a bad guy. Or That's could it be cool. apprehensive? He's bad the entire time? We don't know. No, we don't know. And it, it get, definitely gets me excited for this movie. I feel I'm a big fan of Cosmic Marvel, reading you know Captain Marvel, Guardians of the Galaxy, Thanos, Warlock, stuff like that. Surfer. Surfer, exactly. Mm-hmm. And... It'll be cool to see what this could lead to in the future. Yeah, I think when you have Captain Marvel, it to me, you kind of go to Skrulls, Krees. They have to be in there some context, if, if not directly, maybe indirectly, in the whole character of Captain Marvel. That was an intricate part of his you know, background, history, everything. With the whole Silver Surfer saga, because we don't have Silver Surfer in these movies... Do you feel Marvel missed out by not having him in there, or they were able to make up for it with the Infinity War and whatnot? Because as of this recording, I actually got to rewatch the movie, and I got to say, they did a great job of not needing him in the film. Yeah, but that could be a point where they could use him later. He could come in later. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, that's very possible. So it was good not to have to... You know, put your eggs all in one basket, so to speak, where they could pull another from the deck and put them in at an apropos time, a more appropriate time where it looks like all is lost. And that would be, I think, very cool if they can bring him back in. I think he, to some degree, was a transient sort of character. He could just kind of come in and out of storylines, possibly. Yeah. They made him a focal point of the second Fantastic Four movie, but, you know, even in the title... Well, I've been reading a lot of the Cosmic Marvel because of, you know, the work of Jim Starlin and just how he wrote Thanos back in the day. Mm-hmm. And even now with the upcoming, you know, Thanos graphic novels. But I would say the Silver Surfer played a huge part in the Infinity Saga by Starlin. But the way Marvel Studios told their story, yeah, he would have been, it would have been cool if he showed up, but they told a story in such a way where it was, you didn't need him. Yeah, and that was a good move. I think just the way they were able to take what they had and make it work. And I'm just, I'm excited to see what the future may bring now with 
the Fox deal basically completed? Will the characters through the Fox deal be introduced in one fell swoop or trickle down very slowly? Well, if you think about it, what would make best sense? Probably trickling down. Yeah. To, you know, it's, and it all comes down to money. To make it last, keep the money machine rolling, movie, money, it all ties in, and keep the characters coming in bit by bit, not make it seem overly obvious that this is what's happening. But in some cases, what has happened before, it's been a natural progression and expansion of the characters, the universe, and so on. So it's a good move to to do it slowly. And that way you get, you also on a, pra- I think, somewhat practical level, those who are not as directly connected or knowledgeable about these characters, but know people all who are, are gradually getting acclimated to knowing, oh, isn't that such and such a character? Isn't that, you know, my wife is a good example for, for that. And who's that? And, you know, what did that person do? So, you know, secondhand acquiring knowledge of these characters, it's slowly ingraining into people's conscious, subconscious even. So I think it's a good thing to do it slowly to get them into uh, into the universe. Well, as you heard in our interview that we conducted with Mark Ruffalo, because now by the time this episode airs, this that will have already happened. Well, I heard it all right. I was there. Well, we, we were front row. We were there. Well, we, you know, we had talked to him about the idea of Wolverine, and I feel if they ever do a Hulk movie again... Throw in Wolverine that way. Bring him in. Don't introduce him in an X-Men movie. Because I feel they should do it like this. Establish the old school X-Men team. And when I say old school X-Men team, I'm referring to Cyclops, Angel, Beast. Iceman. Iceman. Jean Grey. Jean Grey, Marvel Girl. Yep. Introduce that group. The core group. Which is going to go back to... The blue team. Which is going to go back to a... uh... First class, First kind, class of, kind of thing, yeah. But I feel everyone's expecting to see mid seventies to even the you know the nineteen nineties ninety two X Men as the team that we're going to see on the big screen when Marvel Studios introduces them. I don't see that happening. I see Marvel is going to be like we want this to be as close to that aspect of the comics as humanly possible. Introduce the old school team first, then go from there. And see what you can do. because And why you ask? Because you start with the beginning so that you can develop and continue and stretch things out. Right. So it makes better sense to to do that. Although with the way Marvel does time, timelines, that even if they did do a later incarnation version team up of X-Men and they flash back to the original, you know what? That could work too. So now I just put both sides, both scenarios on the table. Right. It would make better sense at the first thinking of it to start with the original team and progress from there. But if they drop you into, well, let's see, over time, most people knew the 90s version better, perhaps. So if they start there, then they can go, well, let's flash it back and, and go, you know, the way it began. And, it's and call funny. it X-Men The Lost Years or something. I don't know. It's funny, too, because when you look at the Guardians of the Galaxy, for example, they were not introduced as the original team with Charlie 20-whatever. 27, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Charlie 20-whatever, Yondu, and all the others. Right, right. He, they, was, a, he was a true... Guardian from the beginning, the seven characters. But instead, the character, the Guardians of the Galaxy were introduced as the Abnett and Lanning Annihilation team. From 2008, I think. Correct. And I thought that was cool that they didn't want to go with what, okay, everyone's expecting the original team. No, we're not going to do that. Let's do the most popular. So it's a very, your mileage may vary kind of thing. Yeah. And that was a great gambit. huh So speaking of the X-Men, as we were talking about them, 
I do believe it is time to talk about the topic matter at hand for this episode. You do? Okay. We are going to talk about... Mutation. It is the key to our evolution. And mutation is exactly what the process of the X-Men movie, over its long, struggling time to become a movie, was. Mm. A lot of the different studios ended up having the rights to the film, and things didn't really stick. Things kept changing. And it's a long, strange road. It's a long, strange trip it's been. I actually said that when I met... Isn't that a Grateful Dead song? Exactly. But okay. legendary X-Men architect Chris Claremont, when I met him for the first time, I described his run as that. And it kind of actually caught him off guard. He thought I was like, you know, being an ass to him. I'm like, no, this is really how I've always felt. It's a long, strange trip, an evolution of a man, his writing style, and these relationships with these characters. It was cool to watch. And if you're a fan of Hollywood, it was a long, strange trip of what it was to build this up, much like my segue into the story. Yes. <laughs> and the X-Men actually dated all the way back to 1984 for a film under Orion Pictures. They were supposed to have the rights to it. They were developing it. A lot of different scripts were done. And at one point, James Cameron, you know, Titanic, Avatar, Terminator, Terminator all those movies, he originally wrote an X-Men script. And which, again, is really funny considering hmm. what Mr. Cameron said a few months ago pertaining to superhero movies. He's sick of them. Huh. Hmm. It's almost like a guy who wrote scripts for these things is just upset that he never got to do a superhero movie. Hmm. Hmm. Things that make you go, hmm. Exactly. But he originally had one of the scripts. And I do believe if you go online, a lot of these things you can find and read online. Or he'll read it for you. No. He might. You never know. Just get, you know... Not an audio book, but an audio script. And then, you know, in 1994, the film rights ended up transferring over to 20th Century Fox, where they've remained since. And then came the band, The Script. I'm sorry, but there is a band called The Script. Okay. And during the process of 20th Century Fox's time with the movie, future X-Men writer Joss Whedon would, you know, work on a script. Michael Chabon, among others. And in 1996, the man who ended up going on to direct this movie... Brian Singer, he was signed on back then to work on this film. And this, again, this movie was in production hell. This was always, is it going to happen? It's not going to happen. Is it going to happen? It's not going to happen. Much like the Mandarin. It's complicated. Yeah, but he's not here. Yeah, but he's not here. And that was what the movie was. There were a lot of rewrites and just a lot of stuff. Comic book writers actually worked on the script at one point, I believe in the 1980s, 1990s. Yikes. And to see the evolution of these films, and evolution is an appropriate word because of the animated series X-Men, evolution. Mm -hmm. But seeing it go through all of this constant working, a lot of people, you know, didn't expect it to happen. But I would say in part due to the 1990s X-Men series, with the further pushing into the pop culture subconscious, if it wasn't for the animated series... We wouldn't have gotten an X-Men movie, in yeah. my opinion. Yeah. No, it sounds like a natural progression, like you said, or a logical one. Let's let's go now from the animated to the silver screen. Here we go. And while this movie was getting ready to be made, a lot of different characters were actually supposed to be in here, including Beast and Nightcrawler. But due to, you know, budget concerns, they decided to scrap those characters on the cutting room floor. Because the makeup, it ain't cheap. 
it ain't cheap, but also I feel it wouldn't have been believable. Yeah, and too many in you know in one gathering at at one time to um, to kind of take in and again ingest and process. If, yeah, because if you really notice, other than maybe Sabretooth, there aren't really that many over the top looking characters for this film. Well, Toad. <laughs> He's literally just a tongue. He <laughs> and big eyes when he's got his goggles on. I suppose, but I mean, but otherwise, it's very much just regular-looking people who kind of have a wacky side power. And that blue girl, yeah, Mystique. She. Let me ask you, just right to the point. Oh, the change of her appearance. Instead of wearing the white outfit with the little skull tiara. She ended up becoming a woman with blue skin and red hair and a lot to leave for the imagination. (laughs) What did you feel about that change in the character? I feel it doesn't, like, it doesn't work. It's, I think I had no problem identifying with who that character was when I first saw her. So I made that switch, transition, whatever you want to call it. And for what they were doing in the movie, perhaps that was the best way to go. And it's, you know, perpetuated throughout, whether it's been Rebecca Romaine or Rebecca Romaine Stamos or Jennifer Lawrence later on, you know that character by by the skin tone. But I mean, once you see a blue face, you don't really need to see the rest of the body to know that they're blue. True. And, and to varying degrees, in a, in a sense, you also have the same way with, uh, with the Beast. And I mean, they clothe the Beast in X-Men 3. Yes, they did. So, what? He was he was uh, of higher intelligence. No, he was higher. He was he was book smart and and yeah. But those held, pants are going to chafe. Held, held uh, some you know significant uh, off office title and ranking. Eddie, I'm Italian. I'm really hairy. Okay, uh, pants are a bad decision sometimes. 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 Eddie's look on his face right now is the most priceless thing it's I've ever not, seen. You know, if I could bottle to. this emotion Fan right now. stick pants are a necessity. Oh, Eddie, Eddie, Eddie. But <laughs> I do find it funny that Mystique will go in the nude, whereas you have to pants the beast. Ugh. You don't even see a, uh, a bare-chested beast, actually, I don't, I don't believe, anywhere. Man, there, there's a lot of, you know, missed repeated viewings from some of the females in the audience. They they would have loved to have seen some blue fur. If you catch my drift, Eddie. A blue fur, yeah. Ah, wink. Ah. Blue No. I'm winking for the audio podcast. It doesn't really work. It doesn't. No. But, Eddie, what does work, I feel, was the overall script for this movie, which... Yeah. When the movie came out in 2000, it held up obviously very well because it's a product of its time. The writing is super sharp, super fresh for the time. And watching this movie, it holds up pretty damn well. Starting the way they did with Poland in 1944 and how Eric first manifests his power as a teenager. And then going to, what was it, Meridian, Mississippi, where Marie Rogue discovers her ability to kill unintentionally because she can absorb other people's essences, energies, uh, powers when she's with really in the company of others who have these special gifts. But otherwise, with her first boy, puts him into a coma, I think, from kissing. Yeah. And uh, and realizes something is is not right here. Something is amiss. Amiss. 
a hit or a miss, a misfire. Yeah. I felt the portrayal of Rogue in this movie was really great. She's the unwilling participant in this movie. She doesn't want to be this, but she has to learn to accept her powers. And I feel doing that, making this young girl who doesn't know what's going on, she doesn't want to be in this world. It's, It's almost like a Willy Wonka kind of thing where you're being brought into this world an unwilling participant in a way. Hmm. To see that, to see that through the form of Rogue was great writing. I would say the social stigma of being an outcast like that, that's great, the way they did it. Yeah, no no question on that too. And then you add in the other component of somebody like the, the, the character of Jean Grey and Senator Kelly having that discussion about the whole mutant registration thing and, and referencing, as a side note, an Illinois girl who can walk through walls. You know, bringing, the, bringing these in and, and just making you remember, if you, if you know some of the backstory, about acceptance, about differences, and in being in time in terms of the 60s when the comic book first did come out, these were ma- major issues at that time. And they still, you know, pervade the populace today. And, uh, Let me and this ask- is a good way to, to um, bring this about. Well, let me ask you, as someone who's also read the old school X-Men, the original runs, I'm going to be honest. I feel it wasn't until Stan and Jack left the title that that ended up happening because Stan and Jack just made a comic book with yes. superpowers. There was no social attitude, stuff like that. That, that wasn't the point of the X-Men. The, the point of the X-Men back in the day when the... The title was conceived was, Hey, true believers, let's sell some comic books to the kids. They're going to love it. We're going to make millions. Millions. He's got fire coming out of his eyes. Oh, lasers. Oh, whatever. But it was that. And then when you got writers like Roy Thomas, when you got artists like Neil Adams, that was when the real message of the X-Men came about. And if you want to read some really cool stuff, check out the Thomas and Adams run. That is some cool comic book work. And you see characters like Polaris and just cool-looking covers done by the legendary Neil Adams, which, by the way, if you're at a convention and Neil is there, walk up to him, shake his hand, say thank you, and buy some prints from the guy. Mm. He's one of the last great comic book orators in the sense that he can talk your ear off in the best ways possible. He will make you entertained with what he's telling you. So, Neil Adams, how you doing? Don't know why. I gave a thumbs up, too. Again, for the audio listening podcast, I did a thumbs up. That's it. The audio thumb has, and, has spoken, has and, risen. <laughs> and Eddie's just like, what, what did I get myself into? I, you know, haven't gotten the chance really to uh, to just thank Neil. Because you see him, if he's at a show, he's at a comic book show, you know it. And I don't mean that he's loud or boisterous or anything like that. Dude's holding court with every he, person he, he talks is, to. He's dressed nicely, meaning he's got a shirt and tie. It's probably a comic book tie, but still. It's always a blue shirt, though. Okay. And he takes up a lot of space. I don't mean physically, but I mean in terms of his uh, accoutrement, his uh, ensemble, whoever his he's wears. His wares he sells. His wares. He takes up three, four times what a, as if it was just a comic book vendor that takes up that much space and bringing lots of back issues and so on. But hey, for he good reason. A lot of, yeah, yeah. And, and he, must, uh, he must do, do well. Because, you know, you pay for that space. I like how we're essentially giving a free commercial for Neil Adams. Once again, go to neiladams.com for more information on the legendary Silver Age, Bronze Age, Modern Age, Digital Age, Every Age, Neil Adams. 
Not Golden Age, though. He, he traces wasn't back that. to uh, the Superman creators. He's got ties to that, too. So Yeah, just an absolute cool dude. I'm, and I'm sorry, just like the random you know inners, interlude of talking about Neil, but mm-hmm. Neil's run on the X-Men is one of the most iconic runs. What were those issue numbers, would you say? In I'm the, not... The pre-100, I guess? Yeah, pre obviously. Like, before 60. Okay. Maybe 30 to 50, okay. 40, 55. I don't know. Yep, yep. But... Yeah, that era of the X-Men was where the real issues of social justice and whatnot happened. And that's where those parallels were finally born. And you're not getting them in an issue done by Stan and Jack, regardless of their contributions. Those are fluff comics where you're seeing Iceman make a snowman. Yeah, and he looks like a a snowman, sort of. A a thin one, because he's not... uh encased in ice or is his body structure is not ice but it's more of a snow consistency but yeah the early stuff yeah well like you said they put them out to sell comics to try and make a little bit of variety of what's going on it's not supposed to be taken as too heavy kind of thing later on though the thinking changes and much like in the you know comic book movies in general and to make it more whether it be appealing or or relevant and possibly to draw older readers in and take a step back aside and say, look at these people who are different, who are social outcasts in some respects because of these gifts, these mutant abilities that they have and how that makes them feel, how they react to people. At the beginning of the episode, just naming some of the characters and coming under the tutelage of Charles Xavier, being hated and feared by those they've sworn to protect as part of the intro. And to see a change in the type of storytelling of the X-Men is parallel to the types of storytelling we would get in comic book movies. Mm -hmm. When you start out with comic book movies, they're very to the point. It's a fun, over-the-top popcorn flick. And then as time progressed, especially in the X-Men franchise, you're starting to get deeper storylines, deeper meanings behind what they're talking about. And that's, again, reflective of what the X-Men were. They were fluff stuff that became deep, impactful works of art. And I feel with these X-Men movies, they're, they are hit or miss. And this is one of those movies where it is a hit. But the biggest hit of all was the casting of some of these people in this film. And obviously we're going to talk about Mr. Snicked himself in a bit. But what I want to talk about is the most perfect, most wonderful casting of all of the people in this movie. Sir Patrick Stewart Mm. as Professor Charles Xavier. Back in the 1990s, when Wizard Magazine was at the top of its popularity, they would always have their fan casting. And if you ever saw an X-Men movie fan casted in an issue of Wizard, it was always going to be listed as Sir Patrick Stewart as Professor Charles Xavier. For good reason. He looked the part. His work on Star Trek The Next Generation, he was a very popular actor. And I feel doing that, casting him in the role was awesome just seeing the exact person you can't see any other actor play xavier you can take a guy shave his head look it's all happy legs but guess what what they don't have that presence that patrick stewart has and yet james mcavoy is a wonderful actor 
But I'm sorry. When I see him, I don't get the feeling of Charles Xavier. You just think the younger version. But I think yeah. that Patrick Stewart I first thought of, and not being a big Star Trek viewer fan. A Trekkie. A Trekkie. Saying, wait a minute, wasn't he Star Trek? You know, so was there, I'm sure there was some question in somebody's mind about, is this really going to work? Charles Xavier, who he's coming off of Star Trek now. and I'm, gonna, actually, you know. I'm interested. As someone who's a longtime X-Men fan, and seeing Sir Patrick Stewart get the nod and get the role of Xavier, how did you feel? Like I said, just thought, oh, this is the guy who I know from Star Trek. Captain Jean-Luc Picard. Exactly. I've seen him. I haven't watched episodes, but I know in mass media, this, is who, this is who we associate with. So now he's going to be there. Okay, well, let's see what happens. You Were you apprehensive, though, in a way, or not really? I had the question mark in my head huh. about, about, like, is this going to work? See, this is the thing I like about doing this show. The Like Chris Evans as being cast as Captain America after the Human Torch. This is the thing I love about the show, the generational differences between you and I, where you've gotten to experience this stuff longer than I have, and you've developed your opinion. You know, and it, it's cool to con- you know compare and contrast. I like uh, that. That's mm-hmm. like the equivalent of myself. And when you call us, stay in the lines. That With myself for characters in the current MCU. Like, when I heard Tom Holland, really, can he do it? Can he really play this character? So, right. that's a very interesting thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And continuing with the movie, Eddie? The introduction of, of course, Xavier and uh, and continuing with Eric and their mind-reading ability. You kind of get some exposure to that. Going up to northern Alberta, Canada, where Rogue is, uh, among others, we're seeing the king of the cage, that is the Wolverine, and his introduction and let's just get into it right off the bat the introduction of Hugh Jackman as Wolverine was there ever a perfectly cast person yeah was there no what was your reaction the first time you saw Hugh Jackman as Wolverine nailed it pretty much they got it and he actually wasn't the original one for Wolverine in this movie at the time the person cast to play the role of Wolverine was First off, Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe was mm. Brian Singer's initial choice, but he turned it down. And Doug Ray Scott ended up actually getting cast as the role of Wolverine and had to pull out because of Mission Impossible 2 that was shooting that year for the year 2000. So we almost didn't get Hugh Jackman as Wolverine. So No, I can't believe it. That really was going to happen. So Hugh Jackman almost was not him if it wasn't for Mission Impossible 2 and small little Tom Cruise. <laughs> and during its long and arduous development, different people, like I said, worked on the script, including, you know, Jerry Conway, Roy Thomas, and even Chris Claremont. And Claremont, when he was writing the script, envisioned one person to play the role of Wolverine. That being? Bob Hoskins. Bob Hoskins? You know, the guy who was trying to Roger figure out who, Rabbit. Who, who who helped frame Roger Rabbit. And, and, and we also, still don't know. No, no. And also in um, Made in Manhattan, Jennifer Lopez movie. When you see doughy little Bob Hoskins, the late, great doughy little Bob doughy. Hoskins. Oh, you know. <laughs> wow. Okay, fine. Did you ever expect to see him play the role of Wolverine? No. It's not, I can't see it. Like, I get it, he's short, 
He can do, you know, hey, bub, that kind of voice probably. Yeah. But no, I, no, 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 no. When we got Huge Jacked Man playing the role of Logan, it was perfect. This is, this is a guy who grew into the role, grew into a role of a short character, but grew into a role nonetheless. And I would say... That was the most genius decision in the X franchise. Next to maybe casting Ryan Reynolds as Deadpool. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, taking a step past that, or on a side step to that, we, we get our introduction also to Sabretooth. Played by former professional wrestler Tyler Maine. Okay. Who was and... actually a part of World Championship Wrestling in the 1990s, and a former tag team partner of former character in the Marvel Universe, the Russian, played by Kevin Nash. They were tag team partners back in the day. The more you know. <laughs> this PSA brought to you by Peter Melnick. Exactly. But the character, and without looking too far into it, because it just doesn't pay to, to do this, but the character of Sabretooth, vastly different from the X-Men movie to later with the Wolverine Origins movie. Played by Lee Schreiber. Lee Schreiber. Who, if we're being brothers, honest, they're brothers in that. Well, if we're being honest, Lee Shriver, from a physical standpoint, is a better choice for Sabretooth than Tyler Maine. From a physical standpoint? Yeah. I visual, feel, visual, I'm sorry, you said? Yeah. I I disagree at the beginning, at the outset, because me with the generations behind me. I get it with the long hair. But. Sees the first Sabretooth in the X-Men movie directly more so related to the comic book. As far as visually appealing, it's more of a match in X Men. Well, yeah, because he's got the long hair, but it the makeup is the, the whole main it, thing about him. It's, uh, yeah, it's the living snitch. I don't like it. Yeah, well, there's also uh, in some degree, and I, I think it was where I kind of jumped off the off this run of X Men at my uh, at time <clears throat> in the '90s that there was talk of Sabretooth being Wolverine's father. Right. So there's that. And then it threat. changed and wasn't. And all that. Yeah. What a shock. Things change in Marvel. They do. But with that, I do feel the personality that Tyler Maine gave in this movie was close to what Sabretooth is. Just I don't feel the visual standpoint. It, like, I think if they put a little bit more in the budget for makeup and stuff like that, he would have been perfect. Mm. But otherwise, he literally just looks like a guy with bushy eyebrows and a mullet. And teeth. And Oh, and teeth. That See, that's where they got it right. <laughs> uh, claws worked pretty good, too. He could tear you to shreds. Watch he out, boy. Have, She'll but, chew you up. But the thing... <laughs> Maneater. Hall and Oates, 1982. Thank you. You're welcome. From the Sweat album, also known as H2O. Such a weird-looking cover. It's their close-up of their, their their faces looking at each other. We're seeing them from a side profile. It's like very close-up sweat sweaty. pores and, and, you know, makes you want to take a shower. I don't know. A long, cold shower. But they downgraded, I think, the intelligence quotient of Sabretooth. They didn't give him yeah. really anything very much in terms of a speaking role. Whereas, of course, in the comic book, you had to have some kind of verbal interchange, whether he was Snarky. interacting with, with Wolverine or the whole X-Men team. And whatnot. And Sabretooth even went on to have a couple of other titles, whether it be a short run, uh, a miniseries with just himself, Sabretooth and Rogue, was it, I think? 
Yeah. He was he was with another character for a short run as well. So, yeah, a definitely significant character in the Marvel Universe. We also have the other one of the other villains in this movie, Toad, played by Ray Park, a.k.a. Darth Maul from Star Wars. Yeah. I liked him in this movie. I thought he was a fun villain, just over-the-top cartoony, because that's what comics are. They're, you know, cartoony yeah. and over-the-top. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Rather self-explanatory. But I definitely find it interesting that he literally goes from one big franchise to the next and then just disappears. He does stuff from time to time, don't get me wrong, but not a lot. No. No, that's correct. He's there to round out the roster, perhaps. Yeah. And then we end up getting the other villain. And who is that? Magneto. Played by Ian McKellum. If there was ever an actor, much like we have... Sir. The perfect choice. Yeah, Sir Ian McKellum. Much like we have Hugh Jackman and Sir Patrick Stewart, Sir Ian McKellum did an amazing job playing Magneto. And, again, just perfectly cast. He has that level where you do have sympathy for him because, much like the show Jay and Miles explain the X-Men, they always say, Magneto had some valid points. Yeah, it is true. And with the Magneto in these movies, he definitely has some valid points. And he's not wrong with a lot of what he says and believes. And like I said, if there was ever an actor born to play this character, it is Ian. Yeah, he's he's got you know he's got the opposite side of the coin, the other means to an end, the not quite civil, calm and peaceful method. But it looks like increasingly so as time goes on, this is the only way to achieve some kind of balance in the mutant versus Homo sapien world. Perfectly balanced, as all things should be. Oh, wrong universe. That's exactly right. Did anybody else notice that Jean Grey had a title also? Doctor? She, really? She was given that uh, that status. Was she ever a doctor in the comics? Not that I'm aware of. So they changed... Not to start off with, for sure. Again, I like that they change up some of this stuff. Sometimes there are decisions where you're just like, why would you do that? And then there are others like, okay, that's that's fine. It's not a big deal, but that's fine. Giving her some more credibility and believability, perhaps when especially, at least at the beginning that you first see her speaking... As opposed to Senator Kelly, who's questioning the whole the Mutant Registration Act again, that was previously mentioned. But Doctor is definitely given to her for a spoken, I don't know that it's on a name badge, let's say. But she's also the one that's in there when Wolverine uh, Logan is recovering in the uh, in the X-Men bowels of the, the mansion, so to speak. And this is where we start to see the burgeoning romance mm. between Logan and Jean Grey. And I'll be honest... I don't like how they really did the relationship between Wolverine and Cyclops. I'm not a fan. Like, it wasn't intense enough for my liking. Because I'm sorry, when when this guy is macking on your girl, you're a little bit more pissed off about it. And I feel it just wasn't there that much. That's just me. There was tension, but not that enough. you had to have. Well, you also have to consider that they have to work together, they have to get along. But there, there was plenty of tension in the comics. Oh well, absolutely, and that they could stretch out issue after issue, and true. so on. you can only do That's so much true. in a ninety-minute, two-hour movie. And yeah, that's just what they had to establish to let you know that they're 
in another time and place could have been a relationship there or or not and it kind of you know perpetuated through the x-men films and we also establish other characters in this movie you know storm yes, the white-eyed one the white when, when she got upset her eyes just went completely white when she activated her power now of weather weathercaster from a visual standpoint, I do believe Halle Berry is a perfect choice. But in terms of the character, she's she doesn't remind me of Storm. Not hard, not um, tough enough. Not forceful enough. Forceful enough. And that's what Storm was for me in the animated series. She was a forceful, commanding character. Yes. And in this, I feel like she's more ancillary. Not so much. She's just there. Yeah, well, she rose, we need some rain. She rose to the occasion, I think, as as needed, and when what was truly her her time. Because I think they they wanted to keep Cyclops as the head of the team. Let's say what didn't completely come out in this movie, I don't think, as far as a all right. Let's let's have a go to. What's the plan? You know, besides the professor talking to everybody's mind at once, which is was always the case in the comic books. But you got to remember too that you you had the beast originally just in non-colored hairless form as just a sort of acrobatic, really more than anything else, in his um, X-Men jumpsuit. And we have the jumpsuits in the movie. And I'll be honest, this is an example of a movie, a comic book movie, distance itself away from the source material. Like it's a bad thing. Basically, uh, you like those comic book costumes? That's so corny and unbelievable. But let's base the entire movie on this stuff. You know. Like, I'm sorry. I, yeah, the black leather, the black leather track suits or whatever the hell they are, or flight suits, they're cool looking. Mm -hmm. Don't get me wrong. But so was the source material costumes. Like, if I had to go with them, and yes, it's, partially based on nostalgia but X-Men 92's versions of the characters where Storm has all white where you have Cyclops with the blue and the yellow bandolier across his chest mm -hmm. Wolverine with the yellow and blue etc etc those are cool looking costumes and they can translate over into real life but just getting that right shade of yellow is all makes all the difference I think yeah to some to some extent. But like he even said in the beginning when they first suited up, he said, what do you want, yellow spandex? And so a definite dig to the source material costume then, you know, in his first appearance and so on. And I'm sorry, but, you know, I'm going to liken this to like a bowling team where they all have the same uniform. Like they're, they're a re they really like going bowling. These people, well, like they, then, then they would have the button-down shirts with the yellowish colors and the, the mustards and browns and blues and whatever, and it would really stand the, out. Actually, right. no. That I why well, uh, when I say bowling team, I mean just matching uniforms. But guess what? Bowling for no, soup. The the X Men in this movie, they look like they're going to go parachuting or skydiving. They all look like they're getting ready to do that. They have to have something where the wind is going to not be a factor. They want to just kind of glide through whatever they're <laughs> jumping out of or into, or yeah. But they're not doing much jumping in this movie, so why do they need that? You never like, know. That this is where got a big, large black blackbird plane that gets invisible and stuff. It's gotta. But like I said, this is where the movie does kind of turn me off. The 
visual appearance of the characters. Are we really that ashamed of the fact this is a comic book movie? Are we really ashamed well, of the fact that this is from a comic book? No. I think it's it's a matter of making it palatable to a viewing audience and somewhat believable. Movies are an escape, so you know there's that People factor read also. comics. They have viewing audiences. Yes, yes, well, trying to go through a more, a bigger mass appeal reach because your comic book audience is definitely on a lower budget than, uh, you know, as far as expenses than Superman than wears millions. the red and blue. Yes. And they do it in the comics and they do it in the movies and yeah. they do it in the television and they do it on, you know, aerosol cans. <laughs> no, you're thinking of the bubble bath spray soap soap stuff that comes out of the canister. But like I said, I, I will, con- you know, I'll use that. Like also Batman. Batman still retains the same look of a costume. Obviously that has to be the case. But these characters, I feel, they should still have their original source material. Hey, well, Batman now goes from that blue, couple of shades of blue to the to the black. All yeah, black, but he has so. black and blue, and so you can't tell where he got beat up. I don't know turquoise. Yeah, okay. Imagine a turquoise Batman bordering, bordering on purple. I think in some degree. Well, I mean, he had purple gloves. Oh, very similar. Yeah, but yeah, and then if you put him in the wash with the whites, and it's definitely going to lighten up. We'd be remiss if we don't talk about Jean Grey and Cyclops. And I feel the already established relationship that we didn't see happen. Yeah, we see shades of that relationship, which is fine. Like they, Shades? Of course he's got shades. He's got those ruby quartz glasses. He has to have them for crying out loud. But yeah, I I like the relationship they have. They, they establish it like subtly. Mm-hmm. But whereas, you know, the relationship between Wolverine and Cyclops, it's not strong enough for me. That's just me. Yeah, but they it's, they it's, there. Do- it's not to it's not to be there as a a more centralized focal point. So yeah, they don't emphasize it too much. But just to let you know that this is how it is. What I one scene that caught my attention was with Senator Kelly in the helicopter talking to um, another gentleman who transforms into Mystique. In part of the dialogue, Mystique's voice changes and takes on an echo effect. I don't know that it does for the rest of the film, but. I guess she could do that at will also. Just another little quirky thing, I guess. Those are the little details I like. Those are neat, you know? Mm-hmm. Another quirky thing, of course, is trying to um, follow along with what Magneto was trying to do in his um, abduction of Senator Kelly. Who, by the way, Senator Kelly, they find a way to make a villain out of the most average, normal human being. I yeah, like but he's that. all wet. Well, eventually, yeah. He's just kind of mushy and all way. And whatever it is that he's able to generate with his power, Magneto's power, to... to Tutu? He wears a tutu? You don't know. When the camera goes off, what happens? Generate some kind of white force object onto, onto Senator Kelly that's going to mess around with his DNA. And now he's going to have the consistency of, of water, eventually. And I guess it just doesn't take... Because some people are not born with the mutant gene, and some are. And he mutates again, either in the water. And there you have, coming out of the water, of course, uh, Senator Kelly, the cameo of Stanley on the beach. And I want to know the incorporation of Stan with his cameos. This was one of the very first, if not the first, on of the big screen ones. Yeah. It's very one, two, three to the side, and right. you're done. Yeah, because I don't think maybe um, it was known how much 
they ha could have him do, wanted to have him do, how much he wanted to do himself. But it's a nice nod to have him be there. In, I like how, briefly. yeah, I like how laid back and just minor it was. Like, it's a blink or you'll miss it if you blink a bunch yeah. of times, you know? Yeah, or a long one and you're done, yeah. But I enjoyed this Stan cameo because it's just very funny also. Just like his his reaction to seeing a naked man walk out of the water. Just, what? I like that. It's it's funny. You know, I didn't even know if he had anything other than his facial expression. He had a he smile. Had, did he have? And so no other, no words, no line. Well, I was, I was referring to the failing joke that I was trying to make. Oh, that. Oh, yeah. They happen. On top of that, I think there was a good uh, train station scene with Toad and Sabretooth against Cyclops and Storm. Likewise, a uh, police standoff that happened later, and Magneto had control of all the guns. And these are the things, the storytelling techniques of him that I'm really excited about, that you have so many different avenues to explore with the Magneto character. You have the philosophical stuff, and then you have the actual physical stuff. Yeah. What he can do, what insanity this man can perform. Because, for crying out loud, when you look at it, he could probably use spinach. Okay, because spinach has iron in it. He could control spinach. On a molecular level. Uh, yes. <laughs> you know, it comes, and that's, that was, was going to come back at the very end of the film. What, also. spinach? Could, you know. Comes right back up if you're allergic Strong to, to the finish. Because if you eat your spinach, you'll be... Popeye the sailor man. But what, like I said, you know, just the, the absurdity of, he could he could do that. But you see things like him dismantling a gun... It's cool yeah. because it's almost like a horror film character. Like, you can't stop this guy. Oh, you have a knife? Oh, well, it bent. It's, yeah, exactly. That's, again, what separates, I believe, Magneto from a lot of the other characters in the Marvel Universe. A little confusing part to me was uh, watching the fight scene in Statue of Liberty, part of it, or perhaps at the base of it, Wolverine versus Wolverine, because Mystique has taken on that character until um, Wolverine realizes that Mystique has taken on a storm appearance and says, you're not part of the group, gets stabbed with Wolverine's claws. But I don't know when or how she recovered from that to, to you know, turn out uh, later. And then, of course, they incorporate the changing of hair color or rogue into what she's going through because Magneto has tied her by the hands to uh, harness the energy that he's going to, uh, I guess, really wipe out if they don't change the Homo sapiens into Homo superior, which ultimately winds up failing, and he gets incarcerated in an all-plastic uh, prison containment chamber type of thing where where he's suspended, and at the end, after Charles Xavier has visited with him, and they've discussed their philosophies, opposing views, that that, um, that all-plastic cell re retractable tube has you know, contracted, and he's just going to, um, you know, be staying there because plastic can hold him, apparently. And again, that's one of the coolest visuals where he has, like, a little plastic... Ch I think it's glass, isn't it? Also? also? Chest set? Yeah, it's like oh. glass and plastic. Yeah, sure. And they find ways to combat this character, and it's it's rad. Yeah, I and like they, that. And they, like you said, as far as Magneto and Iron on the molecular level, will go into that with... Um, the one prison guard who gets too much iron in his blood. And he does, you know, his thing. That's time for another X-Men movie. I guess, do you want to wrap this up? I think so. Eddie, the overall impact of this movie is massive. Not a would, thud. Would you say? It's a pretty 
pretty well done, far-reaching, far a great foundation, that's where I'm going with that, to what would follow. From a written standpoint and from an acting standpoint, this movie holds up phenomenally well. Exceptionally well, Eddie. Yes, yes. Uh, forget the E at the beginning. Just start with the X. It is a credit to the writing. It is a credit to the direction. The only thing that really does not hold up that well is the CGI. But that's going to be a given what with, you know, taking place 18 years ago. You know, the technical you, innovations. You yeah. heard what Howard said. I'm limited by the technology of my time. Howard well, I mean, Stark. at the time... It was amazing, breathtaking stuff, but then you go forward and forward and forward, and of course it's going to be not perfect. Like this year, I'm looking forward to watching the Blade movies, because I've never seen the Blade movies before. And to be able to say, I'm going to be watching Blade, the first one, and that's 20-year-old CGI, 20-year-old practical effects. I'm intrigued. I'm actually intrigued. I haven't seen them either. But I got them all on one DVD. Well, I got there's four of them I have. So, yeah, I mean, like I said, from a storytelling standpoint, X Men holds up incredibly well, and exceptionally well, exceptionally, extremely well, astonishingly well, because astonishing X Men, uncannily well. Eh, I don't, I don't get it. There's that generation gap. I, I, because they had uncanny when I was watching Eddie or new, new X Men. There's Grant a new Morrison. Also, yes, yes. Unlimited, even. Hey. It's X-Men hey. Unlimited, not Unlimited X-Men. Pace to get the order. Ultimate X-Men, Eddie. Fine. Happy? Oh, overjoyed. Stevie so Wonder. I would say this movie, again, for the time, it was probably a breathtaking movie to see. I never got to watch this movie for the first time until maybe 2011 or 12, to be completely honest. Oof. Yeah, I just, I never... When I was growing up, I never really cared for the X-Men movies because I never liked the X-Men when I was growing up, which it's funny. It's changed over the years. I have a hoodie, and it's got an X-Men Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters patch. I own so many X-Men comics, have read so many X-Men comics, and it's changed. Yes, you have. And to read these comics, to watch these movies, is an experience unto itself. And X-Men from 2000 is a innovative movie in the sense that it was able to take a team-based movie and make it something big, make it something engaging. And the writing, like I said, the writing holds up fantastically, extremely, astonishingly well. Whatever. The acting is great. You're engrossed with every single story thread. And that's cool. And if I had to give this movie a score, which I do every mo- every episode, for what it is, factoring in everything, I would give this... Carry the one. Three and three quarters. It's not the best, but it's good. Hey, a 3.75 is still passing. It's like, it's like a little over in between. And yeah, just a fun movie. But... A very good starting point. Yeah. For what would follow. Yeah. You can go back and see where it started and go, oh, wow, look how they how they look then. You see uh, Hugh Jackman for the first time and say, wow, how young did he look? Or he looked kind of a lot different. As he didn't look as um, rugged as, as he does now, whether let's, it was let's be honest. portrayed the, or makeup, both. The older Hugh got, the better he got as the character. Yeah, more comfortable. 
when you see him in this movie, he's like baby-faced practically, even with the yeah. sideburns. Yeah, comparatively, and yes. Now, both you and I also, by the way, we watched the X-Men 1.5 extended cut, and it definitely helps flesh out the story. If you're able to track it down, X-Men 1.5, give it a watch. The only one I'm, I know, except for, let's say, whatever is on um It's never been released TV. on Blu-ray. I know that for a fact. Okay. So this is a 2000... I believe this was coming out around the time of X-Men 2. X2. And there's a second disc of bonus features also, content. Correct. Now, Eddie, what would you give this movie as an overall score out of five? I'm more inclined to give with, let's say, a uh, a four and a half. Four and a half? Because it's set... It set the uh, bar tone, tone bar. It, you know, was the foundation, the starting point. And I don't think you came away with it saying, wait a minute, that character never did this, or that really, you know, made you, you know, wrinkle your face, your nose, and just say, yeah, they got the motivations of everyone. Yeah. You, You got a very good establishment of the characters, who they were, and you made the transition if you needed to from the comic book to the movie and it was done well interesting though if you listen to the introduction where i read the top bar of the of an x-men comic book i believe it was issue 107 jean gray's name is not in there there are six characters not her why why that is that change. i don't know if she, uh, i was <laughs> the first thing was was she not as established but i think they more maybe when issue 94 hit that big issue which was i guess the introduction of the new team the all new all different x-men as the title would would go to say for some time that gene gray was part of the old that's it that's really grasping at a straw because cyclops is mentioned at the beginning there by name storm nightcrawler wolverine colossus banshee right those are the six not in the same order but from what i remember reading that's who they went with those are the figures of their heads in that upper left hand corner of the comic book that you saw those things would change not as much as let's say an avengers comic book would change when the roster you know the old order changeth as they as they would say and they would some people would exit some would would come in this is how they went with that the the introduction eventually would would change too and I'll try to find if they perpetuated that later on so we'll get a little bit of variety in there but overall yeah I think it held up very well still very much watchable I think there may have been one or two things I picked up on this watching that I had not any any other time and mostly you know from when it's been on one of the TV channels whether it be FX mostly or TBS this is a movie that practically lived on FX now Eddie before we go how can people get a hold of us on social media? Well, I'm glad you asked yourself. Well, first off, go on Facebook.com slash The Marvelists. Give us a like on there and join again the 5,000 plus that are liking what we do. Closer to six. Yeah. Yeah. Very, but very much. or less than 200 away from six. Go on Twitter at The Marvelists. Give us a follow on there. Give myself a follow at Peter Melnick. And also go on Instagram at The Marvelists. Give us a follow on there once again. Follow Eddie on Instagram at Eddie, as in E-D-D-I-E, 9193. And also follow me at Peter Melnick. And also go on Stitcher.com slash premium. Use the promo code at checkout. Marvelists. Get a free one month of Stitcher Premium and be able to enjoy a crap ton of audio content, including WTF with Mark Marin, Earwolf, the Weird Al Yankovic concert archives, and of course, Wolverine Snicked, the long night bub. Also, go on iTunes, rate, review, and subscribe, and tell people about this show. If they like Marvel, they might very well like our show. I'm pretty positive they will. 
And I'm optimistic too. Yeah. Exactly. Can't have that many followers. Exactly. Yeah, I know. I I cut it with an exacto knife. That was terrible. So, for Peter Melnick, I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior. I see what you did there.